It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 1967, 19-year-old Frank Abagnale Jr. was in the middle of his biggest score yet. Posing once again as airline pilot Frank Williams, he cashed out fraudulent expense checks all over town in Eureka, California, to the tune of $5,000, or about $38,300 today. On his last morning in Eureka, Frank was packing up to hit the road when he realized he'd misplaced a check. And not just any check, but one with his real name and address written on the back. He'd just created a paper trail leading to his front door. Frank immediately called the bank. The teller who answered informed him that they had already identified the check as a fake and had called the FBI an agent would be arriving at the branch any minute. Frank's stomach dropped. Thinking quickly, Frank identified himself as the agent in question and informed the manager that he would be on the scene in 15 minutes. He quickly changed into his most professional suit and, without an ID or a plan, entered the same bank he'd scammed just 24 hours earlier. The head teller was already waiting for him, Frank turned on the charm, hoping it would make up for his lack of identification. Luckily, she didn't ask for any. Frank took the check from her, explaining that it was vital evidence. But first, he made her a copy, making sure to Xerox only the front. Then, with a cheerful wave, Frank walked out of the bank. Five minutes later, the real FBI arrived. But Frank Abagnale had already skipped town. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Podcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, we discussed Frank Abagnale, a con artist wunderkind who ran away from home at 16 to escape his parents' divorce. Frank began forging checks to fund an itinerant lifestyle across America, taking on various new identities, including an airline pilot, a pediatrician, and a lawyer. This week, we'll hear how Frank perfected the art of counterfeiting. Then, disguised as an airline pilot and funded by his fraud, he traveled the world. But eventually, the law 
caught up with him. By the tender age of 19, Frank Abagnale had switched careers more often than most adults, using nothing more than his brains, his confidence, and a little forgery. He'd repeatedly wormed his way into the professional world, posing as a doctor, lawyer, and airline pilot. But somewhere in 1967, when a colleague in his new life as an attorney started questioning his credentials, Frank was almost exposed. He fled town, managing a narrow escape. Soon after, Frank decided he was ready to go straight. He bought a car with some of his leftover con money and drove west. He didn't necessarily have a plan, but he was sure that the right opportunity would present itself. And soon enough, one did. While passing through Utah, Frank noticed that the state had plenty of college campuses, and for a moment, he entertained the idea of enrolling. After all, he was the right age, and he had already proven himself to be a quick study. But as he mulled the idea over, Frank found an ad in a local Utah paper, advertising for a summer sociology teaching assistant at Brigham Young University. And suddenly, he had a better idea. Why pay to be a student when he could get paid to help teach? While the university has since denied it, Frank claims that he called up the university that same day and, after forging a transcript from Columbia University, was hired to help lecture for the summer. As a high school dropout, Frank was hardly qualified to help teach history, let alone a college sociology course but he managed to maintain the illusion by always reading a chapter ahead of his students. And whenever the material failed him, Frank would simply open the floor for discussion, a surefire way to kill time. According to Frank's autobiography, Catch Me If You Can, his lectures were immensely popular with students. And Brigham Young University, by his own accounts, informed Frank that if a full-time faculty position became available, he would be one of their first calls. But once the summer session ended, Frank was back on the road. Though it had been two years since he cashed a fake check, his anxiety that the authorities were closing in never let him linger in one place for too long. In fact, there was no reason to believe anyone knew where he was. But even so, Frank felt an urgent need to get out of town. On his way south towards San Francisco, he happened to pull over in Eureka, California. But what was originally meant to be a pit stop turned into an extended stay when Frank started dating a local woman. While he was in Eureka, Frank made an interesting observation. Though it was a fairly small town, it had a disproportionate number of banks. He realized this presented a rare opportunity with so many institutions to scam, he could make a big score in one place. A first for Frank. And luckily for him, he still had some personal checks from his days as a pilot. And his old uniform. As we discussed in our last episode, pilots can cash checks at pretty much any bank without question. 
Even if he cashed out as little as $100 at each branch, it would leave him with a grand total of $1,000, about $7,400 today. But $1,000 didn't feel big enough for his one last score, and personal checks were always subject to more scrutiny. That's when Frank had another idea. He could forge a payroll check from Pan Am. The company logo would give him more authenticity and would allow him to cash out higher amounts without question. Frank immediately got to work. He bought some blank counter checks, more Pan Am decals, and a second-hand typewriter from a nearby stationery store. With his supplies in hand, he set about creating a realistic-looking expense check. He made the check out for $568.70, a number that felt realistic for a pilot working for a high-caliber airline. The first check took a total of two hours to make, but even then, Frank wasn't especially pleased with the end result. He was worried that it didn't look professional enough and would easily be spotted as a forgery. But without a real Pan Am check to use as a template, he had no way of knowing how close to the real thing his version was. There was only one way of telling. He would have to test it. But before he took the leap, Frank wanted something else from Pan Am to help sell his lie. Passing something off by using an element of truth isn't a new concept. The technical term is called paltering, where a perpetrator uses true statements or careful omissions in order to make something false more convincing. According to the Harvard Business Review, in everyday situations, paltering can be used in negotiation, in a job interview, or even when selling a used car. For example, an executive interviewing a top candidate might tell her that they received 100 resumes and a meeting with 10 potential hires. This may all be true, but what they omit is that she's their favorite choice by a mile. This gives them leverage when it comes to negotiating a salary and benefits. But con artists take this tactic one step further in the case of Frank's fraudulent checks, he knew that he had a better chance at convincing the bank teller that his check was legitimate if it came from an authentic Pan Am envelope. So, he simply added a Pan Am decal and a postage stamp to a regular envelope and took out the check for a trial run. To his delight, the bank accepted it without a hitch. He walked out $568.70 richer, over $4,000 today. Elated, Frank quickly ran back to the hotel to create more sham checks. By his calculations, there were 10 banks in Eureka, and he had at least five business days before anyone realized his first check was fraudulent. That gave him more than enough time to hit each bank and get out of town before anyone could arrest him. But a fateful encounter over lunch almost derailed Frank's whole operation. While eating at a seafood restaurant, Frank ran into the fisherman who'd caught that day's catch. The two men bonded over their mutual love of classic cars, and the fisherman offered to send Frank pictures of his latest project, a 1950 Ford convertible. 
He asked for Frank's address so he could mail them over. The request put Frank on the spot. Everyone in Eureka knew him as Frank Williams, but Frank Williams didn't have a home address, and Frank Abagnale was actually interested in seeing the Ford. So he took out a blank check from his pocket and wrote out his real name, as well as his father's address in New York on the back. But before Frank could hand him the info, the fisherman was called away. Frank pocketed the check and resumed his day, forgetting about the encounter. The next morning, as he was packing to leave town, Frank suddenly remembered the check with all his personal information. He looked around for the incriminating paper, but couldn't find it anywhere in the hotel room. He remembered that after meeting the fisherman, he'd taken several checks to the bank earlier that morning. Then it hit him. He'd cashed the check. The bank now had his real name and address on an incriminating piece of evidence. Frank called the bank immediately to inquire after the fake check. He learned that the FBI was already on its way. Without a plan, Frank identified himself as the agent. He explained that he needed to collect the check for evidence and scheduled to meet with the head teller in 15 minutes' time. Within the hour, Frank had successfully walked out of the bank, the incriminating check in hand, and hightailed it out of Eureka. Later, he learned that he missed the real FBI agent by five minutes. But while Frank was overjoyed by his narrow escape, the feds were furious. Not only had they lost their culprit, but he'd impersonated an agent and humiliated them in the process. And so, they made it their mission to catch the mysterious conman, whatever it took. Coming up, Frank Abagnale becomes a master forger as the FBI devotes more resources to find him. Now, back to the story. In 1967, 19-year-old Frank Abagnale headed to San Francisco emboldened by his latest con. After forging a series of fraudulent checks, he had successfully escaped the clutches of the FBI $5,000 richer. And so, after initially pledging to do just one last score, Frank decided that perhaps it was too early to throw in the towel on crime. San Francisco offered Frank a place to hone his rudimentary forging skills, and with each batch, his false checks looked and felt more authentic. This, combined with his thorough knowledge of the US banking system, quickly made him one of the foremost check forgers in the country. Not everyone could walk into a bank and cash out a counterfeit check. But, as the former police chief of Houston said, Frank Abagnale could write a check on toilet paper, sign it, you are hooked, and cash it at any bank in town using a Hong Kong driver's license. In his autobiography, Catch Me If You Can, Frank breaks his process down with a little more elegance. According to him, the most important traits a con man can possess are personality, observation, and research. Personality, in Frank's case, really meant charisma, or carrying himself with confidence and authority. 
A suit would only get him so far when he was passing off a fraudulent check. He also needed to convince the bank teller that he was beyond scrutiny. Frank's pilot uniform went a long way in selling this, but without his charm, he wouldn't have gotten as far as he did. Observation and research accounted for the rest of his success. Early in his career, Frank noticed that the numbers at the bottom of his checks varied depending on which state had issued them. After some investigation, he learned that the numbers indicated the location of the bank account the check had originated from. Where the original accounts were from determined how quickly the check cleared. The further away the bank account, the longer it took for it to be processed. For checks issued from local banks, it took only three days for the money to be declared as valid. But a check deposited in San Francisco from a faraway city like Boston could take up to seven. Luckily for Frank, local tellers often didn't pay attention to these numbers. And eventually, he was able to use this knowledge in even more creative ways. For instance, if Frank opened a new account for $10,000 or so, standard bank policy prevented him from making withdrawals for three days, the amount of time it took for a local check to clear. But the numbers on the check Frank deposited were actually non-local, meaning the process took much longer. But by the time the check was found to be a fake, Frank had already withdrawn the money and disappeared. The city of San Francisco had so many banks to fleece that the 19-year-old Frank soon found himself with more cash than he could reasonably spend. He took out two safety deposit boxes under different aliases and deposited $25,000, over $190,000 today, in each one, paying rent on the boxes three years in advance. But San Francisco proved to be more than just an ideal place to carry out fraud. Soon, Frank also found himself head over heels. One day, while posing as a pilot at the San Francisco International Airport, Frank met Rosalie, a stewardess, and the two began dating. Before long, the relationship grew serious. Frank even went to LA to meet her parents. Before he'd proposed, Rosalie and her family were discussing marriage. Frank was in love for the first time. But as an imposter who'd been on the run since age 16, the idea of marriage made him understandably nervous. He had enough money to finance a wedding and to buy a home, but Rosalie knew him only by his alias, Frank Williams, not Frank Abagnale. Moreover, with a wife at home, it would be far more difficult for Frank to run cons or disappear if things got messy. If he wanted to continue the relationship, he would have to confide in his potential fiancée. So one day in 1967, while in LA, Frank and Rosalie found some time alone for a bike ride. The lovebirds dismounted in a beautiful park and took a stroll. As Rosalie began to talk about their future family, Frank sat her down on the grass. Then he told her everything. With bated breath, he explained that he wasn't who she thought he was. 
he wasn't Frank Williams, the dashing 28-year-old pilot, but rather Frank Abagnale, a 19-year-old con artist from Westchester County, wanted by the FBI. He explained the circumstances of his parents' divorce and how he'd spent the last three years on the run. Then, finally, about how he had made a living by creating fraudulent checks. Rosalie listened with wide eyes, head shaking. She refused to believe what he was telling her. After all, she'd seen his pilot's license and his Pan Am ID card. She met him at the airport, for God's sakes, and everything he'd said to her indicated that he was familiar with the industry. There was no way he could be lying about everything. But as he continued laying out details from the past four years of his life, the truth was undeniable. Rosalie was distraught. She left him in the park, agreeing to meet him later and finish talking. After she left, doubts began creeping into Frank's mind. He wondered whether telling Rosalie the truth was the right move, or if he'd given her all the ammunition she needed to expose him to the police. He decided to go back to her parents' house sooner than they'd arranged. He wanted to finish their conversation and to judge whether it was time to skip town once again. As he pulled up to the house, Frank noticed an unmarked vehicle parked in the driveway. And a couple of feet down the road, an LAPD squad car. Frank didn't anticipate just how quickly Rosalie would turn on him, but he didn't waste any time feeling betrayed or hurt. He immediately turned around and got on a flight to San Francisco. Once there, he packed up all his belongings, paid for his room, and left without a forwarding address. That same night, he was in Las Vegas, a city known for mending heartbreak. But Frank was surprised to realize that he wasn't heartbroken. He was relieved. Without a wife by his side, he was free to continue conning his way through the States. And he realized that's what he truly wanted to do. As it turned out, Vegas gave Frank more than just some much needed amusement. Several days after his arrival in 1967, he ran into a girl who lost all her money in the casinos. She was in desperate need of some cash for a flight back home. Frank offered to buy her dinner, no strings attached. And as they started chatting, the girl said something that grabbed his attention. She mentioned that she worked for a check design company. Frank started asking her questions about the equipment they used and how they designed checks. Without hesitation, the girl revealed that the company utilized an iTech camera and a printing press to create real checks. Frank was so thrilled with the information that he paid for her flight back home. The very next day, he went looking for the equipment she mentioned. It cost $8,000, but Frank was happy to pay up. To him, it was worth the authenticity. Using his new toys, Frank was able to print 500 high-quality checks that looked exactly like real checks. Because 
except for the fraudulent numbers at the bottom, they were. Before, Frank was using blank counter checks that could be found at any stationery store. But these new checks were specially designed and printed. Even if a teller were to scrutinize these forgeries, they wouldn't be able to tell the real check from the fake. Before he left Vegas, Frank tested out his test copies by cashing them out in all the casinos on the strip and gambling a little on the side. All in all, he walked out of Las Vegas $39,000 richer, almost $300,000 today. With these new checks, Frank felt unstoppable. And even though it was risky, he couldn't help himself from making his way across the country to continue cashing them. The thrill of getting away with a con was like a constant high that Frank was chasing. And business was good. By late 1967, Frank had amassed a fortune of $500,000, or three and three quarter million today. But Frank was more aware than ever that the cops were on his tail. He was convinced that the police and the FBI knew everything he told Rosalie, including his real name, his methods, and his patterns. And as Frank's fortunes continued to grow, he realized it was only a matter of time before he was thrown behind bars. So Frank decided that he needed to flee the country for good. The only problem was that he didn't have a passport. But this was a relatively minor obstacle for Frank Abagnale Jr. Frank decided it would be safer to get a passport in Mexico. He was able to get a visa using his pilot's ID under the name Frank Williams, then he made his way south. A customs officer would have easily discovered the $500,000 in cash that lined his suitcase and jacket, but because of his uniform, he was waved through the border without a second glance. After arriving in Mexico in late 1967, Frank befriended the local concierge at his hotel. With their help, he managed to get in touch with a woman who had pull in the Mexican-American embassy. She was able to issue him a temporary American passport under his real name. Frank got on a plane to London that same evening. But before he left, he couldn't resist the urge to cash out some last fraudulent checks in Mexico for a grand total of $6,500. This ended up coming around to bite him. Now, in addition to the FBI, the Mexican federales were after him as well. But they wouldn't be the first foreign authorities to come after Frank, and within the year, Frank would find himself with warrants for his arrest in more than 20 different countries. Coming up, the authorities start catching up to Frank Abagnale Jr. Now, back to the story. By the beginning of 1968, 20-year-old Frank Abagnale Jr. had tried and failed to give up his life of crime several times. He'd worked in a lawyer's office and even as a sociology teaching assistant for a summer. But after perfecting his check forgery technique and amassing a small fortune, Frank fled to London 
outrunning the authorities. An ill-advised confession to a previous girlfriend, as well as a growing cache of evidence against him, did give the authorities an advantage. But Frank refused to stay anywhere long enough to give them a chance to catch up. He knew that he should stop his scams, settle into a quiet, anonymous life abroad. But after a lifetime on the run, Frank felt he had to keep moving. And in order to fund his travels, he needed to commit more crimes. It was a never-ending cycle that he felt he couldn't break out of. Frank's habit of continuing the actions he knows could result in his arrest can be potentially described as an impulse control disorder, a condition where people are unable to regulate their emotions or behavior. Examples of people suffering from this disorder include pathological gamblers, kleptomaniacs, and those prone to violent outbursts. But Frank's actions seem to be more driven by what's known in criminal law as an irresistible impulse. This term is used in court to define defendants who know right from wrong, but still can't control their behavior long enough to stop carrying out their crimes. This may have explained why, less than a week after his arrival in London, Frank cashed out even more fraudulent checks and fled to Paris. In no time at all, he'd fallen into the same patterns he'd established in the States. And Frank's fakes were getting harder and harder to detect. Right before leaving America, he'd gotten his hands on a real Pan Am payroll check from a stewardess on his flight. Using this check as a model, he'd found a printer in Paris who could print exact replicas. Now, Frank's forgeries could withstand scrutiny from even Pan Am employees, which meant a big payday for him. Soon thereafter, Frank embarked on a tour through Europe. He hopped from country to country, stopping in Spain, Italy, Sweden, Greece, Turkey and Germany, among others. In each new place, Frank pulled many of the same cons he'd perfected in the United States. He repeatedly cashed out expense checks as a pilot and opened fake checking accounts. But as he continued his crime spree, he realized that he was drawing suspicion by traveling alone. In the States, it was common for pilots to travel solo between domestic airlines. But overseas, Americans traveled in crews. If pilots were being deadheaded in for a last-minute flight back home, they would most likely be locals, not an American based 3,000 miles away. So, in one of his most daring cons yet, Frank claims to have hired a fake crew for himself to give his pilot act even more authenticity. Returning to the States briefly, he allegedly reached out to the University of Arizona, explaining that he was looking for potential recruits. He hired several junior students as stewardess interns, a title he made up, but that the women fully believed. In exchange for their participation, Frank showed them the world. He was even able to pay them by cashing fraudulent Pan Am expense checks on their behalf at every hotel they stayed in. 
by the end of the summer, the juniors returned to school with a lifetime of new experiences. Frank, in the meantime, continued looking for the next big score. But something snapped in him. He realized he no longer enjoyed the con work. Instead, he was being driven by a pathological instinct to accumulate as much wealth and cash as he could. And Frank had so much of it, he couldn't even spend what he was bringing in. It was flooding in too quickly. But more importantly, Frank realized that he needed to cool down if he didn't want to spend the rest of his life in jail. So he decided to retire at the ripe age of 20 in early 1969. At this point in his career, he had tens of thousands of US dollars saved up, more than enough to live on. He settled down in Montpellier in the south of France. And because Frank's mother was a French citizen, he was already familiar with the language. The town's size was just right. It was small enough that it didn't have any international airports or train stations, but big enough that an American with disposable income didn't attract too much attention. Most conveniently, his grandparents lived close by. Being in Montpellier allowed him to visit them and served as an alibi to cover up the real reason he was there. Soon, Frank bought a house, a car, and attempted to settle down into a normal life. His taste for adventure had to be satisfied with small day trips, hiking in the foothills of Spain or spending time on the beaches of France. He even started thinking about a future in Montpellier, either as a student or a businessman. Unfortunately for Frank, four months into his new life, those dreams were cut short. In the summer of 1969, 21-year-old Frank was doing his bi-weekly food shopping at the local market when he realized he'd forgotten carton of milk. He set his basket aside at the front so as not to block the other shoppers lined up behind him and went to collect the missing ingredient. He was standing in the back of the store, out of sight, when he paused, sensing that something was off. Then he realized that all the shoppers that were gathered at the store's front were gone. In their place stood four men standing by the checkout counter. One had a shotgun, while the rest looked around menacingly. Frank immediately thought the store was being robbed and ducked behind a shelf. Then one of the men yelled, Abignail! Before he realized what was happening, Frank was surrounded by officers holding pistols and shouting in his face. They forced Frank to the ground and slapped a pair of handcuffs on his wrists. Within the hour, he was sitting in the Montpellier police station, facing two interrogators who were eager to hear about Frank's exploits. Frank only learned later how they managed to find him. A stewardess he'd flown with several years before was off duty in Montpellier when she saw him around town. By this time, Pan Am had circulated pictures of Frank, alerting airports that he was a wanted criminal. The stewardess recognized him immediately and notified the authorities, who took it from there. 
now caught, Frank was ready to let go of the charade. He confessed to everything, and within two weeks, he was put on trial. Per his attorney's advice, he pled guilty and was ultimately sentenced to one year in one of France's oldest prisons, Perpignan. At the time, Frank believed that he'd gotten off easy. But once he saw his cell, he realized how wrong he was. The room was tiny, no more than five feet tall and five feet wide. The only furniture was a bucket on the floor. No bed, no toilet, no furniture of any kind. And when the bucket overflowed, there was no guarantee that it would be swapped for a clean one. Many times, Frank found himself sitting in his own feces with no way to clean himself. In those conditions, it may have been a kindness that the cell was also completely devoid of any light. Frank was in total darkness most of the time, and within his first week, he was convinced he was going mad. Finally, six months into his sentence, Frank was taken from his cell and put on a train to Paris. He wasn't told where he was going or why, but he was finally able to shower and shave for the first time since he'd been imprisoned. Eventually, one of his guards told him that he'd been released from Perpignan six months early. But he was far from free. Now he was being taken to Sweden to be tried for his crimes there. In Sweden, Frank was sentenced to another six months in prison, although the conditions couldn't have been more different from Perpignan. There were no guards, no barbed wire, or even weapons on the premises. In fact, he found it to be so pleasant that escaping never crossed his mind. But while in Sweden, Frank learned just how much trouble he was in. All his international scheming hadn't gone unnoticed. In addition to France and Sweden, the governments of 12 other countries, including Italy, Denmark and Germany, had made formal requests to extradite him. At the rate he was going, the 21-year-old was looking at years in a collection of European prisons before even returning to the United States to face justice. And it would be there that he would receive his harshest sentence. Frank knew some of these other countries were bound to have prisons as horrible as Perpignan in France. Panicked, he begged the Swedish judge that tried him to send him back to the United States. Once he was back in his home country, the other governments after Frank lost their claim on him. But the judge couldn't deny the direct requests of other countries demanding his extradition. Frank was beside himself. The night before he was to be transferred to Italy for yet another trial, Frank was brought before the Swedish judge. He explained that for several days he'd been grappling with Frank's case, and while he couldn't defy Italy outright, he could have Frank's passport revoked. This would give the Swedish government the authority to deport Frank immediately back to America. Frank couldn't believe it. He thanked the judge profusely, immensely grateful. But even this kind act wasn't enough to stop him from trying 
to evade justice. The Swedish prisons had reminded him of all the luxuries that he would be missing while he was imprisoned in the US. And as he boarded the non-stop flight from Sweden to New York, he started thinking of ways to escape. Frank recognized his plane as a VC-10. He knew the aircraft inside and out, including the fact that the toilet hatch often opened up upon landing, triggering an alarm in the cockpit. But because it was a common problem, Frank also knew that the pilot would ignore it. Using this knowledge, Frank went to use the lavatory as the plane descended into New York City. Then, he waited for his shot. As the plane hit the tarmac, Frank unhinged the toilet hatch and climbed in. Moments later, he was sprinting onto the runway. From there, he hailed a taxi to the Bronx, where an old girlfriend of his lived. She loaned the con man some cash, and by the next morning, Frank was headed for Montreal, the closest city where he kept a safety deposit box. Unfortunately, Frank's freedom lasted a total of two days. He planned to catch a plane out of the Montreal airport to Brazil, one of the few countries that wasn't trying to extradite him. But before he got his chance, he was caught by a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. The officer recognized him from the photo in the warrant out for his arrest. After his grand escape, Frank was taken right back to America. In April 1971, 22-year-old Frank was sentenced to 12 years in prison and sent to the Federal Correctional Institution in Petersburg, Virginia. And once he finally stopped running, Frank took the time to reflect on his behavior and what to do now. He became a model prisoner and applied for parole every chance he had. After serving just four years, Frank was granted parole for good behavior in Houston, Texas, and allowed to re-enter normal society. But once he was released, Frank had a difficult time starting an honest life. He found work at a fast food chain and in a grocery store, but he was fired from both jobs once his managers learned that he was an ex-convict. Frank was considering returning to a life of crime when he had another idea helping people protect themselves from the same kind of cons he used to run. Frank pitched a security seminar to a local bank based on his experience on the other side of the law. His lecture was a huge success, and before long, Frank made a career for himself as a white-collar crime specialist. Then, in 1974, Frank's insight proved so valuable that he was recruited as a consultant for the FBI, the same agency that had once chased him all over the globe. Today, Frank Abagnale seems to help far more people than he hurts, while repairing some of the damage he managed to inflict in his brief five-year career. But regardless of which side of the law he's on, he remains one of the most resourceful and devious minds to ever dip his toes into the world of cons.
Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Frank Abagnale, amongst the many sources we used, we found his autobiography, Catch Me If You Can, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Paul Marler. This episode of Con Artist was written by Liz Dorovitsin, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>